The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. start our show today by taking a trip back to the 1980s when singer-songwriter Billy Joel was at the top of his game and he released his song Allentown about the decline of the steel industry in America. Steel factories were closing and steel workers were losing their jobs. The song shed light on the challenges the workers faced and at the same time it made Allentown, a city in Pennsylvania, quite famous. So now let's fast forward 20 or so years to 2001, and Allentown is in the news again, but this time it's because of an insect. An agricultural pest from Asia had somehow found its way to Pennsylvania. The insect, called the brown marmorated stink bug, feeds on apples, peaches, figs, mulberries, citrus fruits, and other crops. Well, it didn't take long for these tough little bugs to spread. And by 2010, they wrecked havoc on orchards and crops in various parts of the United States. And the really bad news is that brown marmorated stink bugs are still here, and they're on the move, and they may soon arrive to a fruit tree near you. So what can we do about it? I've invited Tracy Lesky to the studio today to find out. She's an entomologist and, by the way, an optimist, as you will discover in this interview today. She's also the director of the Appalachian Fruit Research Station at Kearneysville, West Virginia. Her research is focused on the development of behaviorally based management tools for invasive and native pests of fruit crops. But before we start chatting, I would love to hear your stories and your questions during the show. You can email those questions and stories to instudio101 at gmail.com. And do remember to include your first name and the city you're writing from. So tell us, have you seen these bugs in your fruit trees? And what have you done about it? Instudio101 at gmail.com is the email. So now to Tracy Lesky. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Susan, for the invitation. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. And hopefully you will shed some light on these mysterious bugs. Oh, my goodness. So the story starts in Allentown. Can you tell me a little bit about that discovery? What was happening around then? Sure. Um, so, you know, brown marmorated stink bug, as you've already mentioned, is a species that is not native to North America. It's native to Asian countries, including China, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. This insect is an excellent hitchhiker, um, and we'll probably get to that in a little while. But at some point in the mid to late 1990s, homeowners in and around the Allentown region of Pennsylvania 
were uh, seeing some interesting invaders in the fall to their homes. And in fact, these were brown marmorated stink bugs. Now, the issue was is that they weren't properly identified until 2001 when Karen Bernhard, who was with Penn State Cooperative Extension in Pennsylvania, collected some of these specimens from a homeowner. And she ended up sending them to a taxonomist, uh, Rick Hoback at Cornell, and he identified them as brown marmorated stink bugs. So this was the first official record of a population in North America. So how on earth would they have gotten there? How did they get to these people's homes? Right. So one of the interesting things about brown marmorated stink bug is that they are excellent hitchhikers as adults. And what that means is that they can sort of end up being concealed and hidden from view and sort of take a journey to somewhere else. And this is related to what we as entomologists refer to as their overwintering behavior, which is essentially like hibernation for insects. So when these insects hibernate, more or less, uh, they crawl into cracks and crevices and hunker down and wait for spring. And if these cracks or crevices happens to be in some sort of shipment of goods or perhaps in your suitcase or who knows, um, this is how often these bugs have been transported to new locations. Wow. So how quickly would they spread? So let's say, oy, what, a, what a thought. Let's say it's in your suitcase. You've gone on holiday to, I don't know, China or whatever. You brought back these little hitchhiking bugs um, so let's say you have one bug or two bugs. What happens then? How quickly would they spread? Well, if you found one or two bugs, I'd tell you to kill them first. No mercy. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a good question. They have a pretty good um, reproductive capacity. That's sort of what we say in terms of, you know, how quickly can a population build up based on the reproductive efforts of a female. A single female can lay up to 28 eggs at a time in, in an egg mass, and she can lay up to 400 over her lifetime. So you can imagine if, you know, just a portion of those eggs survive to adulthood and then reproduce, you can see that a population could build rather quickly. Wow. So is is that what happened? Like, it, you know, how quickly did this problem spread? You said it started sort of in the late 90s. It was, yeah. you know, discovered 2001. And then what happens? Well, what happened after that was it was a slow spread um, and it was a slow buildup for a number of years. So in 2003, I found the first specimen officially outside Pennsylvania in Maryland, just south of Allentown, um, Pennsylvania, uh, in, in sort of central Maryland in a town called Hagerstown. Uh, there were some, also some uh, official detections in New Jersey. And then it continued to spread through what we refer to as the Mid-Atlantic here in the United States into Virginia, West Virginia, uh, you know, parts of uh, Delaware, um, into upstate, or sort of, well, I should say downstate New York. So the populations continued to build um, over a number of years, and then, you know, really began to build quickly back in 2008, 2009. And in 2010, throughout the region, we really experienced what we refer to as an outbreak population. So what did that look like, you know, especially if you were <laughs> growing fruit trees? Yeah, it looked, well, you know, when we first began to detect problems in fruit trees from brown marmorated stink bug in, say, 2008, 2009, the issues were confined really to the late season, where just before harvest, and this is really painful if you can imagine your fruit just about ready to be picked from the tree, almost ripe, we were seeing large numbers of adults invading the orchards in the fall and feeding on the fruit. And this was causing, for some of our local growers, up to 10% loss even back then. But in 2010, we saw the bugs invading earlier, much earlier, actually just after the fruit had formed, just after petal fall, essentially, in these orchards. And that early season feeding really set up our growers for significant losses where, you know, for our peach growers, many growers lost their entire crops, most lost half of their crop, and then it just went on from there. You know, apples and, um, incurred about $37 million in losses in 2010, just locally. That's terrible. Like, yeah. was the fruit not salvageable at all? I mean, what, what do these brown marmorated stink bugs do to the fruit? Yeah, they are, you know, they are a typical stink bug species in that their mouth parts are essentially a straw. And they insert that straw into the fruit tissue, and they inject some salivary enzymes that essentially helps break down that tissue and suck out the juice. And so what they leave behind is this dry, 
corky tissue uh, beneath the surface of the skin, as well as discolored depressions on the surface. Now, for peaches, because the feeding uh, began so early, essentially, once you peeled that fruit, the entire fruit was riddled with these deep pockets of dead cummy tissue, and, you know, the entire fruit was essentially unsalvable. It was just a complete loss. For, for apple growers, some of the fruit could be redirected to, uh, from sort of a fresh market to a juice market, but, you know, they're getting uh, cents on the dollar in terms of the value. So, in, in essence, they're losing over 90% of the value of that fruit that have normally gone into fresh market. So it was very devastating. I think that was a really scary time. I, I remember talking to somebody, I don't know if it was in 2010, a few years later, and there was this look of shock on her face. It's like, oh my gosh, what do we do mm. with these bugs? Like, how did you get involved and what was your first response? I mean, you're talking about it in a very detached way now, but was it something that, that scared you then? Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, the summer of 2010, I'd never want to repeat, you know, because each week I was visiting with growers where we were doing some baseline experiments to monitor the size of the population to look at the damage and try to assist them. And each week they were incurring more and more injury to their fruit. And as the season went on, you know, it just became worse and worse. And so, you know, for me, you know, the concern was could this bug, this invasive bug, put them out of business? Because, you know, if they don't have fruit to harvest, they don't have an income. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, so it was, it was a very um, intense time. And, and really, it was one that I think really pulled together the entire community in a way. I mean, scientific, regulatory the grower community industry to really work together towards solutions for this bug. Interesting. I've got an email from Denise. Now, let's see. Where's Denise from? She doesn't say. And she's really interesting. She says, will birds help us and eat them? Yeah, uh, Denise, um, birds do eat them. In fact, what we've seen over time, it seems like as more bird species begin to recognize this insect as a good meal, we have seen a number of bird species consuming them. Um, For example, even in my home, uh, when these bugs start moving out of their overwintering sites where they're hibernating in the spring, we see everything from grackles to bluebirds feeding on them. We had an amateur ornithologist tell us that every other meal, um, actually bluebirds were um, feeding to their young, their offspring in the nest, were brown marmorated stink bugs. So there are uh, birds that eat them, but certainly back in 2010, the populations were so overwhelming that it wouldn't have, you know, it may have, you know, made a dent, but there had to be other uh, options as well to really get that that population down. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Denise says she is from Pennsylvania, actually. Oh, right. (laughs) And it's interesting to Denise um, and to the listeners as well. Like, I always really encourage people to put uh, bird boxes or birdhouses Mm -hmm. in their orchards. Mm -hmm. You know, who would would say no to a free, you know, pest control (laughs) eating team, right? They're working on your behalf and they're beautiful. And so why not? But that was a great question, actually. Yeah. Um, Tracy, you, you talked to me about a little bit when we talked previously about how this affected some homeowners. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about what was the most extreme situations that you saw? So this didn't just, you know, wreak havoc in orchards. The people's lives and homes were affected. Absolutely. You know, it is an insect that we say really bridges the agro-urban interface where, you know, throughout the growing season, it's an agricultural pest in a lot of crops. But then in the fall, when it moves to potential overwintering sites to hibernate, it becomes a nuisance pest for homeowners and businesses. And so in the fall, uh, when the bug uh, starts looking for potential overwintering sites, they begin uh, moving and flying in large numbers, usually just around the fall equinox. And thereafter, we see them moving toward homes, in fact, is one of the places that we often find them overwintering. And so it begins with large numbers sort of alighting and landing on the surfaces of people's homes. 
And then ultimately they settle within the cracks and crevices of homes, places that are cool, tight and dry, maybe under your siding, around a window frame, you know, they get into a gable end vent and overwinter beneath the insulation in your attic, whatever. Uh, but the problem is, okay, so now you have non-paying residents in your home. And would you, um, know, non- would you know that they're there? Are they hiding away? No, or would there be any no, hints? they're often quite concealed until, uh-huh. let's say, you'd make a trip up to your attic, you know, in the, in the fall perhaps to get holiday decorations, and you pull out a box of holiday decorations, and there between the layers of paper that you've sort of put in there to protect your ornaments are also layers of brown marmorated stink bugs. Wow. <laughs> and these are fully adult ones, and maybe describe they them are. for us. What do they look like? Well, you know, stink bugs are normally referred to as shield bugs, and so these are large insects, and they have striped antennae, they have striped legs, they kind of have a shield-shaped uh, structure on their back that covers sort of their what we call their thorax and abdomen, and um, so they're pretty distinct, and they're kind they're of big. bigger than all, they're pretty big. They're bigger than most of our native species, so. When you, when you see them, you know they're much bigger than some of our other fall invaders, like we think about Asian ladybird beetles or box elder bugs. Now, um, you told a story about one chap who had, yeah. do you want to tell that story? <laughs> sure, I can talk about him. Uh, this is a, a homeowner who had emailed me um, about the situation in his home. And in his home, he lived in an area uh, that was nestled between some mountain ranges and a lot of agricultural production. And so in the sort of winter of 2011, following the fall of 2010, he was literally having thousands of brown marmorated stink bugs. This is the other issue. Some of them become active during the winter, and they invade people's living space. So in his case, he was getting thousands of them entering his living space, and he began by cleaning them up with vacuum cleaners. And so he had a vacuum cleaner, in fact, on each floor of his home. And what he started to do was to actually take data. And so he began by vacuuming each day and counting the number that he vacuumed up. And by the time he had written his email to me, he had destroyed, and these are this is a quote from him, he had destroyed 12,000 stink bugs in his home in something like 45 days. Oh, my gosh. Like, the, what is that like? You know, stink <laughs> bugs in your sink, stink bugs on exactly. your toothbrush. That exactly. sounds horrible. Sitting on your toothbrush, sitting in your coffee cup, ending uh, up in your cereal box, you know, uh, n- <laughs> none of the places you want them to be. So by the time he had gotten to spring, he had removed 26,000 stink bugs from his home. Wow. Um, and so that's a tremendous um, burden for homeowners to deal with. I hope I hope he had a sense of humor. <laughs> he, he he actually he he does. And Good. he's actually a biologist. Um and he just recently retired and so he was a great actually ended up being a great collaborator on this project and he published that data in a peer reviewed referee journal. Oh ultimately. wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, we have a question from Bill in Chilliwack. He the good question actually. Why are they called stink bugs? That's a great question. Uh, they are referred to as stink bugs because essentially both the nymphs, which are the immature stage, and the adults have glands in their thorax that release what we refer to as defensive compounds. And so these are, you know, sort of kind of, you know, some people would say foul-smelling uh, odors that could potentially um, repel or at least uh, startle potential predators. So uh, stink bugs in general, that's, that's why they're called. They do release essentially stinky compounds. Brown marmorated is a bit of a different smell than other native stink bugs. Um, they have actually, they share a couple of volatiles with the same volatiles uh, uh, that are released by cilantro. So some people have actually become sort of un- unable to eat cilantro anymore if they've been invaded by mm-hmm. large numbers mm-hmm. of brown marmorated stink Oh, oh my goodness. I like the smell of cilantro, but yeah, that would turn me off. (laughs) That would definitely. It hasn't me, and I've lived with these bugs for a long time. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Um, Okay, George writes Hi, Susan. Great show. George here from Maryland. And this is such a good question Do stink bugs bite people? Well, you know, they don't have biting mouth parts like we would typically think of that uh, could give someone a bite per se. However, there have been recorded episodes where 
I would say it's they've been described as accidental probing, where you know the stink bug is sort of trying to discover is this something I can eat, and then it actually turns out to be something not that, mm-hmm. that they may not want to eat. So there have been a few reports of somebody being sort of probed accidentally by a brown marmorated stink bug, but as far as sort of a defensive. Uh, gesture, not so much. They're hmm. vegetarian. Yeah, they're vegetarians. Vegetarian. Okay, they don't like our human human meat. That's no, good. I'm glad no. to hear that. Yeah. You know what, Tracy? Let's. We're going to take a few minutes, and we're going to listen to some words from our sponsors. But after that, I want to talk to you about how we both as homeowners and as growers can keep an eye on the spread of these pests, how we can stop them as well from destroying our harvests. So are you okay holding the line for a minute? Absolutely. Great. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. We'll be back after this short break. Did you know that one of the best ways to ensure organic fruit tree growing success is to order the right tree for your unique conditions? You'll get the widest selection of cultivars from a specialist fruit tree nursery, where you can find heirloom trees, disease-resistant varieties, and more. To download a free list of fruit tree nurseries in Canada and the United States, go to orchardpeople.com slash buy fruit trees. That's B-U-Y-Fruit-Trees. Enjoy the list and your new fruit tree. And learn more about how to care for your tree by signing up for my free monthly newsletter at orchardpeople.com. Looking for a quick, easy-to-apply an all-natural fertilizer to use in your vegetable and flower gardens or for your fruit trees? Why not work with Mother Nature? Layer Hand Manure is a terrific fertilizer, and this is what Actisol does by transforming the manure from their egg farms into an efficient fertilizer. The manure is dried using a technology that harnesses the heat given off by the hands. No other heat source is needed. Actisol is easy to use, safe for the environment, children, and pets. You can purchase Actisol products at your local garden center or order in bulk. For more information, visit www.acti-sol.ca. Actisol, the mother hen fertilizer. The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now, instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. In today's program, I'm chatting with entomologist Tracy Lesky about clamping down on an insect pest that can turn the fruit on your beautiful fruit tree into an ugly, corky-looking, dried-out mess. I'm talking about brown marmorated stink bugs, which somehow hitchhiked to North America from Asia. And in this part of the show, we're going to explore solutions. How can we control the spread of these insects? How can we protect our fruit trees and other crops? But before we delve back into the topic, I would love to hear from you. Have you seen brown marmorated stink bugs in your community? What experiences have you had? Send an email to instudio101 at gmail.com with your question or your comment 
And remember to mention your first name and location. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. So, Tracy, uh, let's talk a little bit about protecting fruit trees from brown marmorated stink bugs. Now, here in Ontario, they've only just started appearing. Is it possible for us to catch them and stop them before they spread? Well, you know, we can capture some, but it's going to be very difficult to sort of get to what we would refer to as eradication, which is essentially, you know, removing them from the um, um, ecosystem and such that, you know, you would have no more. And the reason for that is, is that these bugs have been recorded to feed on over 170 host plants. And so these host plants are not just fruit trees like peaches and apples and pears, but also on many of our um, cultivated vegetable crops like uh, tomatoes, peppers, and beans, but also many wild host plants. And that's often where the populations build up on things like tree of heaven or polonia, you know, which are obviously both Asian species, but also some of our native species such as box elder. So it's really hard to be able to target populations when you're dealing with what we refer to as really a landscape-level pest. Hmm. That's pretty serious. I mean, like, for instance, if in our little orchard in Ben Nobleman Park Community Orchard here in Toronto, if we, mm-hmm. I hope we don't, but if we see yeah. one or two yeah. and we squish them, you know, yeah. well, is that's it? That's good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so are they crunchy when you squish them? Hopefully not. Well, but. they're crunchier as their exoskeleton hardens. When they first molt to the adult stage, we call them squishy because they are a bit squishy, but then they become a bit more crunchy for sure. <laughs> okay, so, well, let's start with that. So let's say we'll start with the, the first step. Let's say we see them. W- what would we see? You, you describe the bugs or what are the different ways that we might see them on our fruit trees, for instance? Yeah, you probably, a couple of ways. You'll probably be able to see, first of all, the adults. And if you see them in fruit trees, they may be feeding on the fruit itself. And you may see them sort of there on the side of the fruit with their mouth parts inserted. You may find the egg stage. The eggs are laid on the undersides of leaves. And so they will reproduce in orchard trees. And so on the undersides of trees, if you find an egg mass, Usually these are round eggs, and when they're first laid, they're kind of minty green, but then they turn white, hmm. and, and they will have a sort of a triangular structure on the top, which is referred to as an egg burster, and those egg bursters essentially help them get out as nymphs. But if you find something like that, those are the nymphs, and then, you know, or sorry, the eggs, and then those nymphs will hatch out, and eventually the first instar nymphs will feed on the surface of the egg, acquiring some symbionts that their mother left behind, sort of like vitamins, and then off they go to feed on the fruit, too. Hmm. I, I don't know if anybody else listening to the show is like me. I When I do see things on my fruit trees, sometimes I think, oh, oh, but what if it's a beneficial insect? Sure. You know, I don't yeah. want to randomly start squishing things on my trees. Absolutely. And there is a good um, beneficial that you may find. I mean, they're not in huge numbers, but there's a beneficial stink bug known as spined soldier bug that you may see out there. And it looks kind of similar to brown marmorated stink bug, although its shoulders are very pointy. That's where it gets the name, spined soldier. Um, But its eggs are quite different. They're golden um, in in color. And so pretty easy to tell the difference between that and brown marmorated. So basically, we're not supposed to go randomly squishing everything thing we see on our trees. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely but not. But it yeah. just goes to show how much learning is involved, really learning to recognize things. It um, does. I have a really a cute email from Irene. I'm not sure where Irene is from, but she says, hi, I'm freaking out here. Ugh. <laughs> how long do they live? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, the adults that overwinter are kind of long lived because if you think about it, they were born in the summer of one year they overwinter for, you know, a number of months, essentially six months, and then they can come out and reproduce. So some of these bugs could live maybe nine, ten months, if, mm. you know, if they're not preyed upon by something or, you know. I think well, Irene is just hoping they're going to die out as a species and then we'll be left alone. Well, I think we all want that, because, <laughs> you know, as an invasive that doesn't really belong here. <laughs> yeah, it makes us all feel so unkind to to, to say that, but... You know, it's actually saying that, I mean, there is probably somewhere where they are just happily part of the ecosystem in balance. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess there is no, no creature on Earth that really doesn't belong anywhere, I suppose. 
Exactly. You know, the brown marmorated stink bug evolved in Asia. It has natural enemies that evolved with it in Asia. And, you know, it's kind of like how we think about our stink bug species here. It's a stink bug, but we don't really sort of, you know, it doesn't call a lot of attention to itself because it's not that numerous. It's in balance with other um, parts of the ecosystem. Exactly. Oh, Irene says she's from Ohio. Oh, they've been recently invaded in oh, the last few years. Boy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, here's a question from Burton from Winnipeg. Are st- stink bugs affecting Canadian growers yet, as far as you know? As far as I know, I don't think we've ha- had reports from any of the provinces about uh, agricultural injury, but certainly uh, there are populations that are being monitored, particularly in Ontario and British Columbia. Hmm. Um, so, um, you know, there are populations that are there, but so far, as far as I'm aware, and, and this last field season, they haven't uh, affected agriculture. Okay, now, nuisance problems, place. yes, uh, there have been homeowner problems from actually close to Toronto and Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I've read about that. Scary. <laughs> yeah, it's right near me. Okay, so let's take it a step further. So first, if we can recognize them and squish them, that's awesome. Great first step. Mm -hmm. But now you're working with orchardists, um, both Mm -hmm. organic and non-organic, I understand, that, you know, have entire orchards. Like, how are they dealing with this? Right. And so, you know, when we first were invaded by this population, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, we had growers that lost almost their entire crop. So the only thing growers could do at that time was to spray insecticides. That was the only tool we had. Now, all of our growers, and I think growers really are just wonderful stewards of the land anyway because they appreciate sort of that agro-ecosystem approach, but, you know, for a grower, um, they had to make choices and they had to spray materials that were what we call broad spectrum, which means, you know, they're not particularly targeted, but they did kill brown marmorated stink bug. Brown marmorated stink bug is pretty formidable. It's hard to kill. So they made that choice and they sprayed those insecticides. Now, that wasn't the long-term solution, and we know that's not the long-term solution in terms of what we're talking about, conventional agriculture. The next approach is really to try to reduce the use of insecticides in different ways and develop what I do, which are behaviorally-based management tools, to try to bring as much balance to the agroecosystem as we can. So what are these tools that you're talking about? Well, you know, some of the first that we developed, for example, were monitoring traps, uh, traps that we could use to detect the presence, the abundance, and seasonal activity of brown marmorated stink bug so a grower would know if they did need to spray an insecticide because the problem with scouting, which I'm sure, as you were mentioning, Susan, you know, if you're going out squishing stink bugs, you're looking for them. And so we could go out during the day and look for stink bugs, but unfortunately a lot of activity is at night as well. They'll feed at night. So we needed something that we could use to essentially uh, detect their presence night and day, use that information, and then develop what we refer to as thresholds. In other words, if there's a density or number of insects out there that require intervention. So that was the first thing that we did. And so what is that, a sticky trap? What would that look like? Well, the initial trap looked kind of like a, it's, it's a large black pyramid trap. It's, it's essentially a, a, a two-panel trap that fits together that's shaped like a pyramid, and it is a trunk-mimicking stimulus, a tree trunk-mimicking stimulus. It looks like a tree trunk for a foraging stink bug. They climb up. They have a natural tendency to climb up, and then they're captured in a collection jar at the top. And so we could look in that jar and collect the stink bugs. And that jar was actually baited with the pheromone of brown marmorated stink bug, which we identified a few years ago. Hmm. So, so then that was the first yeah, step. Okay, first step. Well, you know that they're there or you know when they're there. What's mm-hmm. the next step? Well, the next step is, okay, so as I mentioned, then we may apply insecticides, but how can we reduce those insecticides? Do we need to apply them to the entire orchard? What we're finding is because this bug is often building up on border row trees, trees outside the orchard, some of these wild hosts, and invading from the perimeter, 
we can just treat the perimeter of the orchard. In other words, you just spray the border of the orchard and leave the center intact, and so that allows your natural enemies to flourish, and it reduces the overall insecticide inputs into the system. So that's a border spray approach. That's fantastic because it means that, like, if you have 10,000 trees, you're not even spraying all 10,000 trees. You're spraying just the, the rows on the outside. Exactly. You're spraying usually, you know, much less than 10% of the orchard is actually sprayed with an insecticide hmm. or brown marmorated stink bugs. So that was one approach. The other is what we refer to as attract and kill, where you take that same border approach, but then you only take certain select trees that we take that pheromone that we've identified, bait those trees, allow the stink bugs to aggregate in those trees, and then just treat them only. Hmm. And so, again, you're reducing the amount of insecticide that you're applying against this pest. Those are the kinds of things that we're trying to do to, you know, manage this bug as sustainably as we can. Interesting. In a minute, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what organic gardeners can do. Mm -hmm. But uh, first, we've got a question from Juanita. Let's see where she's from, from North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So she says, hi, are there any close species to the stink bug that look like them and do the same damage? There are some closely related species that do create similar kinds of damage. Um, in fruit, we have a couple of native stink bug species. The, what is, one is referred to as brown stink bug, which is the scientific name is Euschistus cervus. And they will also feed on fruit and damage fruit. Um, but they're a bit smaller and um, obviously not as numerous. There's another species known as uh, the rough-shouldered stink bug, uh, uh, it's a Brachymena species. Um, there's actually a really good website where people can look at um, stink bug species on stopbmsb.org and learn about lookalikes so they can d differentiate the different species. Okay, so let's say that again. Stop the... Stopbmsb.org. Stopbmsb.org. That sounds yeah. great. We should all check that out. That is fantastic. Thank you, Juanita. And so now let's go to organic growers, community growers. Like, even if we wanted to, we couldn't use the pesticides that you're talking about. Sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so the question is, what would organic growers do? Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the in the short term, I think the the big things that we've seen that organic growers can do are one. You know, if you're growing vegetables there and things like that, there are sort of, you know, row covers and things that can provide that physical barrier. On fruit trees, I have a colleague who's done a bagging study with sort of the fruit bags that you would use, are commonly used in Asia, actually, to protect fruit from insect damage. It works pretty well against brown marmorated as well. So it's almost like physical barriers to prevent the bug from getting to the fruit or the fruiting vegetable to feed on it. Um, it also, we were talking when we previously spoke about uh, kaolin clay, which is a spray yeah. that organic growers use. And I was yeah. saying to you that, so something that I, I we use in our orchard is called orchard socks. Now, the orchard socks protect growing fruit from certain many types of insect da damage, like um, codling moth and stuff. But I would think that these these nasty little brown marmorated stink bugs would get their stingers through. But I've been told that some people spray on top with kaolin clay. Now, what does the kaolin clay do? Yeah, you're right. Exactly right, Susan. They can definitely penetrate that with their proboscis and get to the fruit. So the kaolin clay provides what we refer to as a physical deterrent. The bugs do not like to have that material on themselves because it is kind of like a desiccant. It dries them out a bit. It clogs their mouth parts. It clogs their trachea. So it is a good way to deter them from getting on the plant, getting on the fruit, or getting on those socks. So that's an option. Yeah, so that's mm -hmm. another option. Mm -hmm. oh, Juanita writes back again about the website that you mentioned. She says, no thanks, I'm not looking. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's a little grossed out by all of this, but that's okay. Um, so, okay, so organic growers have some options too. Um, also, we were talking about homeowners and... You know, is there an op is there somebody you should call even if you don't see or if you see these insects in your fruit trees or if you see them in your house, do you report it to somebody? I mean, is there somebody who can it's important for them to know where these bugs are? 
Yeah, you know, especially in regions where it's not been picked up yet, usually, at least in the U.S., we have the extension service that is is monitoring for these potential invasives. I'm sure Canada has a similar kind of network in the provinces. And so if you see something unusual um, and it isn't something that's been there before, it's a very good idea to get in contact with these local officials, whether it's through an extension service or a, a local department of ag, a, pro, a provincial department of ag, and report it. Because actually that has been really the first calling card left by brown marmorated stink bugs, so sort of knocking on the doors of homeowners. And in fact, it's been used not only in the U.S., but also in Europe to track the spread, where homeowners become citizen scientists and report brown marmorated stink bugs showing up. I love that. I love that idea, citizen scientists. Like, we're all working together to, you know, track this thing, you know, whether it's brown marmorated stink bugs or something else, counting butterflies in our gardens. I think it's just so wonderful to be active like that. Um, so what we're going to do now, we're going to take a minute, we're going to hear some words from the wonderful sponsors that make this show possible. But also, after the break, we were talking about butterflies. Listeners, you can win a copy of a really beautiful book I have right here on this desk. It's called Gardening for Butterflies from the Xerces Society. So there's going to be an opportunity for the listeners to win. All you need to do is have access to email and you may win the book. So anyways, after the respite, Tracy and I will talk about the future when it comes to keeping brown marmorated stink bugs in line. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, I'm Mark Cullen with some news about a wonderful lineup of garden supplies and garden tools that will absolutely knock your gardening socks off. They're called Mark's Choice, and they're exclusive to home hardware, 1,100 stores coast to coast to coast. Mark's Choice features great quality products that will not only last years, but in some cases will last a lifetime. Look for my various garden gloves, Stainless steel garden tools, stainless steel digging tools, my new garden backhoe, and many, many others. As a matter of fact, there's over 160 different products in the Mark's Choice lineup. I'd love you to try them all, but start by sampling one that appeals to you. Drop by your local home hardware, have a look at the Mark's Choice lineup of tools and garden supplies, including my line of garden soils, and decide for yourself. Great quality lasting quality, and a great gardening experience. That's what I strive for with Mark's Choice. Look for it at Home Hardware. My name is Mike McNairn. I'm the manager of Universal Field Supplies. Universal Field Supplies specializes in products that are used by arborists, they're professional quality tools that uh, guys that use them every day need to rely on. So they tend to be higher quality than what's found in big box stores. The Universal Field Supplies product could be used by anybody that has trees and likes to look after trees. We've all been to school for forestry or arboriculture and we have many years of experience. We would be happy to answer any questions people have and actually ask questions of them and find out exactly what their needs are and determine what product would suit them the best. Don't hesitate to call. Here's how to reach us. Call 1-800-387-4940 or email at info at ufsupplies.com. See you soon. Universal Field Supplies has stores in Mississauga, Ontario and Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. Learn more at universalfieldsupplies.com. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. And now, right back to Susan 
I'm Susan Poisner, and you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, a program where we learn about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture, and lots more. Thanks so much for tuning in. So in today's program, we've been talking about a bad bug. At least it's a bad bug if you find it destroying the fruit on your fruit trees. And that bad bug is the brown marmorated stink bug. Of course, not all bugs are bad for our trees and our gardens. In fact, most insects are beneficial to our gardens. Now, here's an example of that. Butterflies. So, in today's program, I would like to run a little contest. Would you like to win a copy of a really beautiful book called Gardening for Butterflies from the Xerce Society? If so, this is what you need to do. Go to your computer and write an email right now to instudio101 at gmail.com. And the third person who emails will get a copy of this book for free. I'll send it to you in the post wherever you live. So get going now, folks. Write to instudio101 at gmail.com. And in a minute, we'll see who wins a copy of this book. So now back to my conversation with Tracy Lesky, director of the Appalachian Fruit Research Station at Kernsneyville, West Virginia. So Tracy, we've talked about brown marmorated stink bugs. We've talked about their history and how they can damage our fruit trees. We've talked about how to protect our fruit trees. But here's my question. What is the future when it comes to these bugs? Are they going to continue spreading? Will they ever go away? Yeah, you know, so Susan, so one of the that's that's the question that we asked ourselves from the very beginning when brown marmorated stink bug hit. How can we deal with this pest in the long term? And so, you know, just like we talked about at the beginning, this bug has the potential to feed and reproduce on a number of different host plants, over 170, both wild and cultivated. So we need a strategy that is going to work across all of these wild and cultivated host plants to reduce populations. And so it really comes down to our beneficials or our natural enemies, uh, the predators and parasites and potentially uh, even pathogens that can help reduce these populations of brown marmorated stink bug in areas where it's established such that it kind of becomes just like another stink bug species. We don't really notice it anymore, if you will. Well, would it be, I mean, this sounds crazy, but would it be possible to go to China and find some of its enemies, bring them over, uh, or would that cause even more of a problem? Well, what you're referring to is a concept known as classical biocontrol, where essentially there is foreign exploration. We go to places where the pest is from to look for natural enemies that have evolved directly with the pest. And in the case of brown marmorated stink bug, because our native natural enemies were not doing a good job at keeping the populations in check, classical became an option. And so there was foreign exploration in China, Japan, and Korea, and populations of parasites were brought back and put in quarantine where they had been um, evaluated for potential release. So in other words, doing what we refer to as host specificity screening. Are these uh, parasitoids, these small uh, wasps, uh, specific to brown marmorated stink bug? Are they only going to attack brown marmorated stink bug? Mm-hmm, because otherwise everything can go out of balance if they start attacking things that we want to keep. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. We want to make good decisions about bringing another organism into the environment. Well, what about there must, we have our native stink bugs. You've mentioned that. So who, who what creatures keep them in line? Are there paras, uh, parasitoid insects that eat them? that might Absolutely. develop a taste for <laughs> brown marmorated stink bugs. Yes, there are a range of different parasitoid species that do attack. In this case, it's really the egg stage of brown marmorated stink bug as well as our native stink bug species because if you think about it, the eggs are immobile. They can't run away, so it's a really good target. And so what these parasitoids do is lay their eggs in the eggs of stink bugs. These parasitoids hatch. Uh, the larvae hatch, and essentially they feed on the egg and kill the egg. Um, And so we do have a number of species of parasitoids that attack our native stink bugs, but unfortunately through what we refer to as sentinel egg mass surveys where we put out egg masses of brown marmorated stink bug to see if they're going to be attacked, we were getting very low parasitism rates, especially initially, you know, 4 or 5%. So not enough to keep a population in check. Hmm. But, But over time that 
you know, we have seen, I think, some uh, positive signs, and particularly in some ecosystems. So, for example, in woody ornamental systems, some of the nurseries, uh, we have seen higher rates of parasitism from particular species. And it comes back to the fact that each parasitoid has places that it likes to forage. And so those are the places, you know, that maybe, you know, have similar kinds of habitats to brown marmorated stink bug. They may, you know, be a little bit more likely to find brown marmorated stink bug eggs. So it, it it sounds like the eggs are the vulnerable place. Like it, it sounds to me like these bugs are big and they're kind of crunchy. Like so that <laughs> protects them. So I guess it would be hard to get the adults unless, as an earlier uh, person wrote in, unless it's a bird eating them that can you know chew chow down on those guys, the big sure. adults. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But there are some bigger generalist predators that we do see feeding on um, brown marmorated stink bug adults besides birds. These include praying mantids. Um, I've seen praying mantids sit on the sides of walls in the fall and just wait for the next brown marmorated stink bug to mm, show up. Interesting. Or wheel bugs, which are, you know, kind of another sucking insect closely related to stink bugs. But in this case, they are predators and they suck the life out of brown marmorated wow. stink bugs. <laughs> wow. What do you, what's left once they, once they're gone? Do they have like, is the shell left or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah a little empty. Kind of suck the life out of oh, them. Oh boy. All the <laughs> yeah. needy stuff. We've got a question from Jessica in Ontario. So Jessica says, hi, Susan, what time do the brown marmorated stink bugs become active in the spring? I.e., this is a good question. Are there early season crops um, where fruit would be harvested before they could be affected by them? Hmm. Good question. It is a good question. And, you know, some of the crops that we haven't seen being highly affected now, not so much fruit trees um, for the most part, because they will feed on immature fruit as well. So, for example, a peach is really vulnerable from the time the fruit is set until harvest. But, you know, in the case of some other uh, fruit species, like, for example, strawberries, we've never seen a lot of, you know, attack of strawberries, at least immature berries, whether it's because it's a tree or they just don't like the fruit, we don't know. But, yeah, there is a potential, and we, we do refer to that as sort of an ecological escape, the 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 pests activity and the plants phenology don't line up very well. Hmm. Wow. Um, okay. We've got, I love this. Michelle Rhoda. I love emails like this. Hi, Michelle writes from Albany, New York. Hi, Susan. No questions today, but what a very informative show. Excellent information. Thank you so much, Michelle. I love getting emails like that. <laughs> Makes you. it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Yeah. So, okay. We've got Tate. Tate wants to know, did I win? Did I win? Ha! Only kidding. Great show. Well, <laughs> let's find out. Maybe Tate will win. Maybe not. We'll see. Okay, we've got a, an email from Elise. And she says, even though your topic is grossing me out today, I absolutely love the great information. Thank you. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> Do you know what? It's It's kind of like, I think the more that I work with fruit trees, the more I'm... I'm trying to embrace the parts of nature that we aren't really trained to embrace in our society. And, and I guess you as an entomologist, you were brought up with being fascinated by bugs, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was. Yeah. So I've... tell me a little bit about that. How come you don't get grossed out like some of us do? Well, I think my mother was part of the reason. Um, she, you know, always took us on nature walks and pointed out insects. And so, in fact, she encouraged me in this. And my first show-and-tell project in kindergarten was taking monarch butterfly caterpillars to school along with milkweed and demonstrating pupation to my class. So I think it was sort of, you know, right there in the DNA from the very beginning that mm. <laughs> I would end up on this track. And um, uh, Yeah. And so, and I think the other part is I really like... Uh, what we call applied ecology and problem solving. I like to help growers develop more sustainable systems. So it really drives me and my research program to strive for that. And the other thing that, 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 we, that you mentioned when we were talking before, because a lot of people who are listening to this show, we all are very committed to as much as possible growing things organically. It's so important to us to care for this earth. But there was something that you said to me on the phone about conventional growers and I have so much gratitude for conventional growers as well because frankly they provide a lot of the food that we do eat but Mm -hmm. what what is your perspective about conventional growers and using chemicals 
you know, no grower wants to spray because they recognize that, first of all, it costs them money, but it also has an ecological cost. So when growers use insecticides, they're using them as smartly as they can and trying to minimize the impact. They want to have a crop to harvest and so that we have food to eat, but they also want to try to have as much of a balance with nature because every grower that I've ever worked with, you know, it's so funny. I can remember during the brown marmorated stink bug outbreak, you know, we're talking to a grower about the fact that, you know, he just loves the good work that his green lace wings do in his orchards and it was going to kill him to just have to put on a material that would be very unfriendly to them. So that's kind of how I look at it, you know, and that's how our growers look at it. They 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 want to do what's best for um, the crop, but also as much as they can, what's best for the environment. Hmm. Lovely. Okay, so let's take the big picture. We're coming towards the end of the show. Where mm-hmm. is the brown marmorated stink bug now? Where Where is it? Where has it already infiltrated and yeah. causing problems? And where does it look like it's going next? Yeah, there, you know, there's, the brown marmorated stink bug has been found throughout much of uh, uh, the United States and, as uh, so we talked about, some Canadian provinces. But it's also invaded parts of Europe, particularly in Italy, in Greece, in parts of Germany, France, um, in some of sort of the former Eastern Bloc countries, and in particular places like Italy as well as the Republic of Georgia have had some significant agricultural issues. And so they are kind of like where we were, you know, six or seven years ago. Uh, The pest has also recently turned up in South America and Chile. There's a population that was just recently detected. So, you know, it it is still... um, you know, able to invade new regions. But the other part of this that I'll just mention is the fact that it really threw us an interesting curveball just over two years ago where the Asian parasitoid that I mentioned actually showed up on its own, just like brown marmorated stink bug to North America. Mm. So recently, uh, 2014, we picked it up in the mid-Atlantic area. It's been found in a number of states here in the eastern U.S., as well as Washington and Oregon State. And so this is the parasitoid that was potentially being considered for release because it does have a big impact in Asia. And so it showed up on its own, and it is definitely affecting populations. When this parasite gets to work, we see up to 80% of the eggs being parasitized, which is great. Mm -hmm. I can tell you our growers applauded. Oh, I bet. (laughs) Standing ovation on that one. Yeah. What gratitude. Well, yeah. So how are growers feeling now? The the worst of it, it feels like is over. 2010 has come and gone. Mm-hmm. How how do growers, how are they handling this, this little mini epidemic at the moment? Well, you know, we know a lot more about its biology, its behavior and ecology. And so that informs their management programs very much. We have monitoring tools and we know that n- really biological control is the long-term solution. So they, I think growers in general, I'm sure you're the same, Susan, we're all optimists, (laughs) you know. That's why we grow uh, food. Um, You know, we would like to see things grow and come to fruition. So, you know, they all uh, made it across the bridge, I think, and are pretty optimistic about the future, but they're not turning their backs to this bug yet, you know, Mm -hmm. because it still can be quite damaging if if one does <laughs> not um, pay attention. Exactly. Well, let's have a look. Um, Gary in the studio, let's see who won the competition. And I have a feeling, Gary, can we see? It's it's actually Elise. I think her last name is pronounced uh, Bulane. Okay. Did she? I'll get that information. Yeah, you're going to yeah, get so no, it no looks issue. like Elise. It looks yeah. like that you Congratulations, you won. Elise. Yeah, you won. I'm not sure if she wanted to just send in a comment or if she wanted the book. Elise, do you tell us if you want the book? Because if you do, you got it because you were the third person emailing in. And if not, we will give it to somebody else. But email us. Sure, I'm sure. And she also wants it. email us with your address so I can send it off to you. I'm so happy with all the participation today. I love hearing from everybody. Um, and your feedback and your amazing questions. And Tracy, I really love chatting with you on the show today. Thank you so much for coming to teach us all about brown marmorated stink bugs. Thank you, Susan, and thank your listeners for the excellent questions. Yeah, awesome. I've got the best listeners, i got to tell you. Such interesting <laughs> people out there. Well, it's been wonderful to meet you on the radio, Tracy, and goodbye for now, but hopefully you'll come back again one day. Thank you. Okay, great. 
That was Tracy Lesky, director of the Appalachian Fruit Research Station at Kearnsneville. I can't pronounce that very well, can I? <laughs> Kearnsneville, West Virginia. And her research has focused on the development of behaviorally based management tools for invasive and native pests of fruit crops. The Urban Forestry Radio Show is just about over for this month. Did you enjoy it? I really hope you did. So if you did, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can find it at orchardpeople.com slash podcasts. You'll be able to listen back to this show or to listen to our other archive shows that cover all sorts of topics relating to fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. And of course, while you're visiting orchardpeople.com, do sign up for my monthly newsletter. It's packed with great information about fruit trees and food forests and all sorts of good stuff. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing everybody next month. Listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com/podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month, and each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.